was kind of used to withholding parts of myself in order to not put myself in perspective danger or for people not to discriminate against me or for people not to do harmful things towards me. I knew that I had to do things for my self-protection in order for me to be able to function in that environment. And welcome to Let's Not Talk About It. This is a podcast that does talk about it. We're going to unshush, take the lid off, and get rid of the stigma around the trauma that currently keeps so many of us silenced. And to do that, we'll share stories from ordinary people overcoming extraordinary struggles. I'm Camille Tootie. I'm Sharon Tiger. And I'm Amanda Zieda. And we are your hosts. Hi, ladies. Hello, how are you? Well, I've come to the realization that the world is a dangerous place. At least if you're a transgender person. For this episode where we will be talking about gender and identity, among many other things, I've looked at some statistics that paint a stark, scary reality for trans people. So for example, and these are numbers from the Human Rights Campaign. Over half of trans people have experienced some form of intimate partner violence. 47% have been sexually assaulted in their life. And at least 27 trans and gender non-conforming people were killed in 2020. And aside from the violence, trans people are also subjected to stigma and harassment more than cisgender people. They also increasingly face lack of legal protection, poverty, discrimination, the list just goes on. However, in recent years, things have gotten better. So according to the Human Rights Campaign, half a decade ago, only 25% of Americans supported trans rights. And that number was actually 62% in 2019. So with this episode focused on our guest's story of crossing boundaries, I wanted to explore with you what we can do to be better allies. The Trevor Project has put out a great guide on how to actually do that and be a better ally for trans and non-binary youth, but I think it applies to older folks as well. And it includes these actions, for example, respecting a person's pronouns and names, avoiding certain outdated terms and language to refer to trans people, avoiding microaggressions. So for example, say, you don't look trans. And those are just a few things we should keep in mind. So ladies, do you have any other tips on how to be better allies in this day and age? Gosh, that is a hard one. I don't know. All I can do is speak from my experience and my point of view. And I just think kindness and acceptance. That sounds so simple, but if you start from a place of kindness and acceptance, that seems like the place to start. I know there's a lot more work, a lot more heavy lifting to do, but I don't know. Just be supportive. Let people be who they are, accept them for who they are, love them for what they are. And I don't know. Why can't we all just get along? I wish it was different. I don't have anything more specific because I'm not as educated as probably I should be. Maybe that's another starting point is just to educate and put yourself in the shoes of someone experiencing this and trying to imagine what it might be like for them. And that brings you right back to kindness and empathy. So I don't have a a ton to offer here other than just be a good human. (laughs) Don't be an asshole. You are a parent. So how about just listening to your child? Oh, gosh, that's huge. And that's actually been a huge shift for me as a parent as I entered the teen years is learning how to just listen and be more of a coach. Just listen and then ask questions asking questions like, what would you like to do? How do you want to handle this? How does this impact you? How do you feel? What can I do to support you? What can I do to help you feel better? And so that's universal. No matter who you are, what gender you are, that's universal. Be supportive and ask questions. That brought me right to it, Camille. That was a good question. I agree. I think I take that approach too, Sharon, just listening, accepting, when friends or people talk about their experiences, just listening and trying to not question the validity or judge others' experiences, because there's just no way that we could know how 
or what they're going through. I also think over the past couple of years, I've been trying to, like you said, educate myself more, read articles and books written by different types of people, different genders, races, ethnicities, watch TV shows that are more inclusive. I think that also helps make more entertainment, more inclusive in general, when the industry starts realizing that that's what people want. And then our kids can grow up seeing that on TV and learning that people come in all shapes and forms and sizes and colors and and things like that. So yeah, I think educating myself, broadening my horizons on what I watch and listen to and read and learn about, I think is helpful too. But yeah, just accepting and being non-judgmental, listening is important. Amanda, you brought up a really good point, representation. If we just compare to what TV shows used to look like 10 years ago, 15 years ago, there's a big difference. I was watching one of my vampire shows, right? I don't need to mention which one it is, but it has to do with vampires because I have a slight obsession. And it's not a big thing if one of the character has like a same sex partner or if someone says that they are non-binary or they even talk about being gender fluid or whatever. So that's really refreshing to see that there has been movement. And like I say, things are improving, but as a society, we still have a long ways to go. So I wanted to ask you to... What can we do as a society to improve conditions for trans people? I mean, it starts really about making sure that everyone has the same rights. And there are certain lawmakers that have been restricting rights for trans people. So that's so infuriating. I was doing my research today ahead of another episode. And that's when I came across. And actually, it was... (laughs) Something I just learned. I imagine if I was transgender, I would be much more on the up and up about this legislation. But as I was doing my research, I came across it and I I think I was really shocked. I was really shocked that people still are there, stuck in that place, putting down walls that are basic human rights. It's pretty unimaginable. I mean, we're still talking about the bathrooms and trans people, and it's been going on for years. It's ridiculous, but that is something that is near and dear to certain lawmakers' hearts. And it's just really discouraging. Not just the bathrooms, Camille. The laws that I was reading today was about medical care. Yeah. About denying medical care. I'm just, what the hell? Really? Yeah. It's really systemic, which I think is the hardest part, too, because as a society, there are so many things that we need to like rethink about. I mean, like you said, the laws are written a certain way, society norms have been ingrained in us a certain way. And to change them seems like this huge overhaul because it's been like this for so long. So I think it starts with, yeah, like you guys said, I mean, lawmakers, I don't know, pushing for just simple equality. And that does not mean a girl's bathroom and a boy's bathroom, right, anymore. So I think the problem is that it's so systemic. It takes real foundational changes. No, the thing that resonates with me, and then I promise I'll, I, I can't help it. <laughs> when we get on a topic, as we talk about it, I get more passionate about it. The thing that resonates with me across all of these subjects, all the things we talk about is that we all have the same beating heart. Like we all have the same beating heart inside of us. So why are we so focused on the outward appearance of people when Inside, we're all the same. We all have the same needs. We have the same need to be heard, need to be valued and cared for. Why we can't focus on what we have in common versus what we have that's different. It's perplexing to me. Yeah, I mean, you summed it up nicely. So with that said, let's get to our next guest. An award-winning author, artist, and journalist with degrees from both Cornell and Harvard, Meredith Talusen's story actually has humble beginnings. She grew up in a small rural village in the Philippines where she was born an albino boy. As the only light-skinned and light-haired child for miles and miles, who also happened to like other boys, Meredith was used to being and feeling different. At 15, Meredith immigrated to the U.S. She soon realized other people assumed from her looks she was an able-bodied, native-born American. That deepened her sense of cognitive dissonance and spurred her to further reflect on gender, identity, and even privilege. After getting a scholarship to Harvard, Meredith found herself navigating issues around race, class, sexuality, 
and her place within the gay community. But a drag show would change the trajectory of her story and illuminate a path toward her true self and further enlightenment. Stick around. After our conversation with Meredith, we'll be talking with licensed psychotherapist, Dr. Aquia Boaten, who'll give her expert insight and advice. And now here's our chat with Meredith. Meredith, you're an award-winning author, artist, and journalist, and a Harvard, Cornell, and California College of the Arts graduate. But your story and your journey really begins with a boy who was an albino growing up in the Philippines. Take us back to your childhood. It's so strange to think about, and even I find it really difficult to recall my childhood without the sense of cognitive dissonance for myself because I did grow up in a rural Philippine village called Talaksan in a province called Bulacan in the Philippines, which my early childhood was spent mostly playing outdoors in the shade when I can because as you mentioned, I'm albino. So I learned very early on that spending a lot of time in the sun was not a good idea. And I was only light-haired, light-skinned child that I knew growing up. And everybody around me had dark hair. Do you remember your first memory of realizing you were different? I don't necessarily know if it's my first memory of realizing it was different, but I remember my grandmother, who is my paternal grandmother, was pretty much the darkest person in my family because my paternal grandfather was light-skinned. And I remember suckling on my grandmother's breast because... My mother wasn't there and my grandmother took pity on me. I remember noticing being that close to her, both physically and emotionally, that even though we were family, even though we were as close to each other as we could possibly be, that I was radically different from her. There's a term for it in the Philippines, sun child. What does that mean? Yeah, in the Philippines... Albino kids are called anak araw, which does mean sun child. And sometimes that is also applied to light-skinned children of Filipino mothers who white fathers but were raised in the Philippines. And that's just what albino kids in the Philippines are called, which made me feel there were enough of us around that there was a term for us. I grew up in the provinces until I was six and my parents were living in Manila because they were in college. My mom decided that she wanted me in Manila when I was six, even though I didn't want to. And then one day she just said, oh, like we're going to this audition. I remember just going into the studio and being asked to learn the scene and recite these lines and be cute. The director was really impressed that I could memorize my lines really fast, which I think was why I ended up being cast in the part. And I was a sitcom kid for four years and they did some acting in movies as well, but then rebelled and decided to focus on my studies and didn't want to act anymore. <laughs> um, and so I stopped by the 12. I refused to act. So otherwise... Perhaps I wouldn't be here. Perhaps I would be a Filipino celebrity. It would be a very different life. <laughs> <laughs> so you were a teenager when you moved to the U.S. Can you talk a little bit about that journey? Yes, I was 15. My mom has three brothers and her parents were already in the States and my mom should have been with them, except that she got pregnant with me and she was forced to get married to my dad because she was pregnant. And it would be enormously shameful if she had a child out of wedlock because 
she got married, that meant that the waiting list for married people to come to the United States was one year if you were single. So basically, I was the reason why my mom got stranded in the Philippines for as long as she did. So I was 15. We moved to Chino, California, where one of my uncles was working as a nurse. Originally, we were supposed to live with him at his house, but he got into an argument about that because it's not that big of a house. And so my uncle actually also had some extra rooms in this nursing home facility. So I ended up living in this nursing home for about six months. And that was my introduction to America. So it was just a very bizarre experience. And Chino, California, for people who don't know, is predominantly working class. I went to a public school. It was not necessarily the idyllic introduction to the United States that I was expecting when I was watching shows like Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous or Knots Landing when I was growing up in the Philippines. Yeah, I was going to ask that because many foreigners who come to the U.S., myself included, they have this image of America and California, especially as this glamorized world where palm trees and beautiful people, rich place. So was that a culture shock for you to realize that this is not the reality or what I've seen on TV? Yeah, it was definitely a huge culture shock and was really bizarre because I had no point of reference for what I was experiencing. My life was like in Southern California, in part because of the fact that everything that I saw in the Philippines had been filtered through the lens of American colonialism, right? So shows that portrayed a glamorous version of America were portrayed. The American military were the people who set up the Philippine education system. So I only read white authors in English and was not at all familiar with Cesar Chavez. I was not familiar with Martin Luther King and civil rights. I was not familiar with poverty or race. I was not even aware that Latino, Latinx people existed. I wasn't aware that I would be classified as an Asian American. When you started school here in America, did you feel like you were out of place or it was a strange kind of thing to be almost thrown into? Yes, I was absolutely out of place in school. I came from a conservative Catholic school in the Philippines. So I was very shocked my first day of school when I saw people kissing and wearing what I considered to be borderline swimwear. <laughs> the first time that I raised my hand, I stood up beside my desk in order to answer. And the teacher said, we don't do that here. You know, like you can sit on your desk, you know, you can sit. Yeah. So it was a big culture shock. Did you feel as different in the States as you first have a feeling different in the Philippines based on your appearance? Or was that not a factor when you moved to the country? It was really fascinating because pretty much all my life, people in the Philippines have said that I belonged in America. And people in the Philippines have always predicted you're going to be with people who look like you. So it's just going to be easier because nobody's going to recognize that you're Filipino, right? And the really odd thing was like, A, I didn't completely believe that really, but also B, it was a very strange thing to be true, right? Like for me to land and for people to think that, I'm white until I started talking. So for a while, probably for the first year or so of me being in the States, I had people say, oh, like, you know, like, where are you from? Are you, are you from your, are you from Finland? In fact, Finland or Ireland were the two guesses. And then I would say, no, like I'm Filipino. 
by my second or third year in America, people usually thought of me as a native-born American until I said something or there was a reference that I didn't understand. And then they would be very confused. Or I would use an idiomatic expression incorrectly, especially for a high school student at the time. There were indications that people had to be sensitive to that for them to understand that I wasn't white. How did that feel like as a young adult still finding themselves and trying to figure out who you are just as a person in general? How did it feel not being able to be completely honest because of the way that people perceived or treated you afterwards? I was kind of used to withholding parts of myself in order to not put myself in perspective danger or for people not to discriminate against me or for people not to do harmful things towards me. I knew that I had to do things for my self-protection in order for me to be able to function in that environment. But what was really difficult during that period was I had to get services because my vision wasn't very good. I had to get my books enlarged. Sometimes I couldn't see the blackboard. There were things that had to be done on my behalf. And once you're labeled as a disabled, quote unquote, disabled kid. And that entails a whole other set of assumptions and a whole other set of bias. I remember like I eventually became an executive editor at Condé Nast. I remember we were publishing an article about queerness and disability, and we were having a discussion on Slack. And I said something like, oh, as a disabled person, blah, blah, you know, like I feel this, blah, 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 blah. And then my boss, you identify as a disabled person. And I was just like, yes, I'm albino. Like I have low vision. It's part of what being albino is. (laughs) And he was clearly surprised. I always feel like it's very hard for me to distinguish between whether somebody is surprised because somehow my low vision is invisible to other people or whether it's because people have ingrained relative abilities of able-bodied versus disabled people. And people find it hard to engage that somebody who is legally blind like I am is also somebody who can occupy an executive role at Condé Nast. When you responded with withholding certain parts of yourself, I realized that that's perhaps a more accurate description in these circumstances and using the word honest isn't perhaps a correct lingo. So I just wanted to thank you for bringing that to my attention because it matters and it makes more sense. Seeing all of this terminology, I actually just was talking to another albino person And she asked me, oh, like, how do you describe yourself? And I said, oh, like I say, oh, like a Meredith and blah, 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 blah. And I'm albino. And oh, it's interesting that you don't call yourself a person with albinism because that has become more common because that you're albino or you're an albino implies that people are reducing your identity to that one trait. And I just said, well, if I made my adjectives longer, my bio would just be like all of my identities. (laughs) But it's possible that I can say person of trans experience with albinism who is a first generation immigrant, how it's all of a sudden many, many more words long. One of the big issues that I've written about is just the fact that everybody is embodied in their transness differently, right? And for me, in terms of my experience of my transness, I experience myself as a boy, right? But at the same time, what's really odd is that in the Philippines, the default term for a child is child. And those words, girl actually don't exist in Tagalog because in Tagalog, what's important is that the kid is a kid. It's not important what their gender is, right? And that's true for a bunch of other terms in Tagalog, including nephew and niece, one word that is gender neutral, and there are no gendered pronouns. It's so interesting. And then add to the complexity 
you came out when you got to Harvard, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a scene early in your memoir that talks about that first drag show that you went to. And you, for the first time, were wearing women's clothing. And there is like all these wonderful descriptions of the fabric, how it felt on your body, things like that. Dressing as a woman for the first time certainly had an enormous impact on my life because before that, it's interesting just because in the Philippines, third gender people are more socially accepted in many ways than they are in the US. But the thing was that they were always perceived, even though they had a social place, they were always perceived as frivolous. You can't take them seriously. They're entertainers, they're florists, they cut your hair, et cetera, et cetera. They are socially accepted, but understood to be inferior. And I was this kid who was at the top of my class, who took myself very seriously, who planned, didn't know what I was going to do with my life, but it was going to be something professional and, you know, like, and worthy of my talents, et cetera, et cetera, right? You know, like I had these visions of grandeur for myself as one does. And so I just never felt like dressing as a woman was any part of that. And then when I was aware of this thing that I couldn't help, which was that I was a boy attracted to other boys. But then I got to Harvard where I was at Harvard. This is Harvard. This is the place that everybody says is the place that any person who wants to be a serious person in life is. And then men dress up as women and women dress up as men, like once a year over dinner. And you are expected to be part of this tradition. And so I just did it. And then as soon as I did it, as soon as I put on a dress and makeup, people perceive me as a cisgender white woman because I was of average height and build what is considered normal for a cisgender white to be, to be embodied, which would not have been true at all had I had people identified me as Asian. Because whenever I'm in the Philippines, when people figure out that I'm not white and that I'm actually an albino usually quit to also figure out that I am trans because people in the Philippines are sensitive to this in ways that people in the States are not. How did it feel to be perceived as a cisgender white woman? It was really bizarre, very strange at first in those brief moments in college. And then when I transitioned a few years later, three or four years later, one of the reasons why it's strange is that even though I know that other people perceive me as white, I will never perceive myself as white. It's this very weird paradox. There are times when I do things, oh, you know, like you just did this thing that you identify more with white woman culture than with Filipino culture. So then I'm just like, oh, wait, like the, you're definitely acquiring traits that are more typical of white people. But on a day-to-day -day basis, my internal dialogue, the voice that is speaking to myself is the voice of a Filipino person in America, especially back then. Like I also became aware that people not only perceive me as a woman, but that they perceive me as an attractive woman. And then as a gay man, I was like wayfish, thin, puny kind of person. Like I only needed to dress in women's clothes. And I was this glamorous wayfish model, like young woman with straight blonde hair and et cetera, et cetera. Right. And I definitely was very caught up for a significant period of time with the fact that I was fitting into this mold for people that corresponded to the ideal of beauty because I was naive. <laughs> and I didn't know that everybody would also think that I am no longer smart <laughs> or that they could take advantage of me because I didn't know any better at the time. 
That's really interesting. You noted in an interview in the Paris Review that it's kind of similar how you're explaining this part of your life to us now is that you wanted to write as if you were explaining yourself to yourself and not as some trans memoirs take on the approach of explaining yourselves to cisgender audiences. And that was very important to you when you were writing your memoirs. Yeah, I think... By the time that I started writing Ferris in earnest, which was winter of 2018, I had already been in media. I'm a very prolific writer. I had written scores, scores, so, so many articles explaining various aspects of trans identity to cis audiences. Like I had been a columnist for The Guardian in which I had to explain Caitlyn Jenner. I had to explain Rachel DeLazal, thousands of comments. I had been a staff writer at BuzzFeed. Everything that I was writing about is essentially explaining trans people to a broad cis-dominated audience. And so when I started working on Ferris, part of the reason why I wanted to write a memoir is also because one of the things that I noticed is the memoirs that existed at the time, and some of them were amazingly written, they took on this posture of, oh, I am a trans person. You don't understand what it's like to be trans. So I'm going to explain it to you. And I just felt that to be deeply, deeply unfair because of the fact that prior to my journalism career, I was a literary scholar, partly probably because of the fact that a good part of my work was in French. And in France, there's very little distinction. There's much between memoir and fiction. Both genres are thought of as in the same way. It was just not a consideration for me that I would write from the perspective of somebody who is explaining that for me, it's never any kind of explicitly political text, even when these politics implied in anything that you write. And so my models were literary memoirs, right? Were Joan Didion's The Year of Magical Thinking, were various memoirs in French, nerdy, nerdy, nerdy things. And all of those models are all about like the author trying to make sense for its own sake, not because like they're begging readers to respect them, take them seriously, not harass them, not discriminate against them. And it was really important for me. My political stake in this particular project was to say, look, I'm trans and I deserve to write my memoir on the same terms as people who are white and cisgender and native born. And those terms are that I'm going to tell you about my experience and that these experiences were confusing to me at the time and I hadn't completely taken them into account for myself. That's the posture that I'm taking is that I'm explaining my experience to myself. That's beautiful. I'm curious, what question about trans people are you completely tired of answering? Oh, there's so many questions. There's just so many. And I feel like I'm protected from those questions now. Because most of the time, by the time people interview me, they usually have been like, oh, seen Meredith get mad. <laughs> about these questions that in some ways make assumptions about trans experience is far from universal. Is there a question that you wish you would hear more? Ah, that's a good question. Well, what's really fascinating is that the trans people, trans authors, especially when we're writing about trans things or identity in general, we're often asked about the what's of our experiences. And I don't feel like it's off we asked about like things that fall outside of those identities, right? And I think too often people forget that trans people, I know people, or Filipino people have a ton of influences 
side of our identities. I was a Francophone scholar and studied the Negritude movement extensively. I play the guitar. I paint. So dance too. I dance as well. Yeah. And I think it's unavoidable in certain ways. I think what I'm talking about is when the expectation is, oh, like you're being interviewed as a person, as a complete person in a general. And I think often, boom, the most important things you experience about yourself are your identities. Whereas for you, those are just in the background of your life, especially now for me. Obviously, like transition is a crisis. And there are those types of key moments in your life related to being trans or to being albino, et cetera, et cetera. But then you have the rest of your life. <laughs> you just have all of this time to do all of, well, especially me, I'm kind of a busybody, So... <laughs> I'm just always doing way too many things at the same time. <laughs> you make the rest of us look really bad and like slackers. I mean, I have so many things always going on, but I feel like I've accomplished nothing compared to you. <laughs> it's always a matter of perspective, I think, just because being the generalist that I am, I think from a certain perspective, I don't have that concentration of the person who like clockwork comes out with a book of years, right? Like but I always, you are, you're a renaissance, you're a renaissance <laughs> woman because you're good at everything. It's unfair. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is true that I have, at least in the artistic realm, I've definitely explored a bunch of different fields a certain degree of accomplishment from the perspective of the outside world in a few of them. Yes. What do you want to achieve next? What's coming up on the horizon for you? I mainly focused on fiction. I'm working on short stories and a novel. It's very scary. Fiction is very scary for me, I think, because in order for me to write good fiction, that requires a lot of trust. Because when I'm working on criticism or journalism, those are parts of my brain that are in easy reach and within ready access. I'm able to sort of like coalesce these facts and make these sound arguments, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas with fiction, I have to parts of my brain that are much more diffuse. I've honestly learned so much from speaking with you today. And I wanted to know if there's anything in particular that you want people to take away from your memoir, whether it be the trans community or just everybody in general. I don't have anything specific necessarily that I want people to take from my memoir, except that it is a memoir about me and not about any of the demographics that I belong to. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you so much. We are so grateful that you were willing to share your story with us. It's been really amazing speaking with you. Thank you for supporting our podcast and for sharing. And one more thing, where can people find you online? My website is mtalusin.com. So it's just my first initial and last name.com. Meredith's story is one of transcendence and transformation, but also about being unapologetically you. Her journey is so unique, yet touches on so many important and relatable aspects of humanity, like race, gender, sexuality, and self-acceptance. We thank her for sharing her story. Next, we'll talk with our expert who will offer information and context around trauma. Our expert has never met Meredith, and this isn't meant to diagnose and treat, but to help us understand trauma better. Hi, Dr. Button. Welcome to the podcast again. This is the very last episode of this season. So I wanted to thank you for your participation. I've learned so much from you and it's been such a pleasure working with you. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much, Camilla. I think every time I, I dive into some of this material, it just reminds me of the resilience of human beings and our ability to recover and thrive in the midst of really tough circumstances. So it's been great to hear stories and to 
bear witness. And is there a way our audience can reach you if they would love to work with you or if they want to read or watch any of the other content that you've created? You can find me uh, most all social media handles I am on as Aquia K. Boateng, A-K-A-K-B-O-A-T-E-N-G. That's on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Also, my website is aquiakboaten.com. And if you reach out to me in any one of those areas, I will reach back out to you. My email is info at aquiakboaten.com as well. So let's get to Meredith's story. And it's one about transformation and transcendence. Can you talk a little bit about how these events can shape a person's psychological state of mind? Well, just those two words, I think, are really powerful, right? Transformation and transcendence. When we think about transformation, it's really about identity formation, starting in one state of mind and moving to the other. Oftentimes, you navigate lots of pain, growth, evolution in order to become a fully developed identity. And that identity is often evolving. Transcendence is how we make meaning in life what allows us to thrive and have the motivation to move forward. And so Meredith's story really is about one of transformation and transcendence in trying to identify what authentic identity most fully represents what she really desired and continues to desire. And so psychologically, it really is lots of processing what feels authentic based on intuition, based on social cues, based on even pain can be revelatory for a person that is searching for that meaning that they need in life. And one thing I thought was really interesting about Meredith's story is that she is so multifaceted. There were so Mm. many different pieces to her. She wasn't just at first an albino boy. She wasn't just a gay man. She wasn't just a trans woman. It was all these puzzle pieces to kind of fit together to create this really, really multifaceted, multidimensional person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And some would even say maybe multiple identities, right? That throughout her experience, depending on what season of life you met this person, you would find that their identity was really evolving based on what support Meredith had based on the people in her life that were able to provide safe space to discover, and then also get into what it looks like to have awareness of what is possible and what your identity most closely resembles as far as language. So as that language developed for Meredith, I think so did her identity. Yeah, I love that. Meredith talked a lot about cognitive dissonance What does it really mean and how could that affect the person? Cognitive dissonance really just refers to the stress of contradictory beliefs or the space between two beliefs that are equally compelling, right? And so there's a stress around that because we seek consistency in life. We seek cohesion in our values, our attitudes, our worldview, and when there are conflicting ideas that we hold, there's a stress around that because we're not in harmony. We're not in harmony with the most important things to us, which guide us, our values and our beliefs. The risk here is that while we are often as humans trying to minimize uncertainty and risk, cognitive dissonance has a higher propensity for anxiety and discomfort. And so someone that might be in this conflictual state has a higher stress level. They may have insomnia. They may even drop into depression as a result of not having that sense of harmony and consistency internally. And so there are a lot of things that really affect a person that has this level of stress for a long amount of time. 
first as a gay man and then as a trans woman, Meredith mentioned how she was used to withholding parts of herself so she wouldn't put herself in danger or be discriminated against. And I know that that's a really common challenge for either gay folks or trans folks. But what does that do psychologically to a person? When we think about, especially in this case, when we think about the psychology of not being your true self is what I can call it. It looks like fragmentation. Fragmentation is when you have to live in the state of a false self or multiple selves or not being able to be accepted for who you truly are. There's a lot of self-hatred that can happen. Lack of trust, lack of intimacy with people, right? If I have to conceal parts of myself I can't fully be known. I can't fully be seen. So intimacy is compromised. I can't trust a person with my full self. And so these things become really valuable, especially when a person is developing because you're trying to integrate and find out who you are. And if those parts of you don't come together because they're concealed, you have a fragmented self. You have a false sense of self loss of authenticity, and a loss of true communion with your society and community. And so what I've seen is a failure to develop true convictions and inspiration because you have to deny those things so often in your life to be protected and to not be in danger. You can slip into depression as a result of not being able to be your true self, not being able to have that sense of trust and intimacy that we all need. In some cases, even suicidality is life worth living if I can't be myself and if I can't even be known by others. Anxiety, social disturbance, so many things happen as a result of that fragmentation. How do you start putting those fragmented identities together to become your authentic self or your true self? Where do you start? Yeah, Integration. That's the word integration. How do I find a space where I can be safe enough to be more of myself than I'm typically being? It's not going to be zero to a hundred, right? You being your full self in a safe space. It even takes time for you to trust the space and for you to feel comfortable being your true self. But integration looks like, are there people in my life that I feel safe enough exploring who I am revealing parts of myself that I haven't felt comfortable in the past and feeling accepted, safe with this person, and then also welcomed and celebrated. Those environments are corrective. They're really healthy Mm -hmm. and they allow you to pursue this level of integration. Another way of doing that is obviously through therapy where you get to say things that you may not be comfortable saying to other people. If you're exploring your identity, if you're exploring your sexuality, if you're exploring certain aspects of living that you haven't really tried, you're kind of undone or in process, having a space with a therapist that is low stakes. There's no one really keeping you to this, right? So you have the ability to, to play and discover and explore. Bringing those things outside of yourself to another person and being seen and, and received for that is also very healing. In my episode intro, I mentioned that the world is a dangerous place for trans people, and I bring up some of the uh, violence against them. What are some other common struggles you see this community go through? Well, the violence really needs to be underlined, right? That there's so much violence that happens for trans folks and what needs to be done on a social level, on a government level is so valuable and vast. We have a lot of work to do there. Violence really is important to start with because there's a lack of safety. When we're not safe, we cannot thrive. And so violence is something that really creates a challenge for an individual that is seeking to find harmony within their identity that affects their family structure. There's a lot of family conflict and estrangement that happens for trans people. Not having the people that you have looked to for support in your family being with you along this journey can be very devastating and emotionally disturbing for people. Isolation, bullying, 
often self, again, self-hatred. I don't love what I see when I look in the mirror and there is a disconnect with my body and brain sometimes, which causes a lot of emotional entanglement for people. These struggles are really related to social stigma, not being accepted in society and pushed to the fringes of society makes living just very difficult emotionally and isolation and loneliness is one of the larger epidemics that we've experienced in this nation and abroad. Trans folks just feel that in a deeper way. When Meredith talked about identity, she said transition is a crisis. So how can an ally or a therapist help someone going through a transition? Educate yourself about the process. Educate yourself about the emotional process, the physical process, the economic process, the social process. The more you educate yourself, the more that you can come alongside in the way that a person that's transitioning needs you to, not in the way that you feel that you need to. Language is important. Appropriateness is important. And so education allows you to do that. Secondly, show up and support through safety creating a space where uh, a person can fully be themselves. They might be going through physical transformation. They might be going through emotional transformation and a non-judgmental, unbiased, positive regard space is invaluable for a person going through transition. And so if you feel like you can't do that, don't make the space available. If you feel like you can and fully support a person, Maybe you're a good ally and a a therapist that can support a person in this process. Also, it's important to not only be an ally in private, but being an ally in public. That's something that I have really talked a lot about recently. Even in our field of psychology, it is often that we're doing much of our work privately, but we may not do that publicly. And so in assisting your client that is going through transition or as a trans person, it's valuable and helpful. Publicly creating social impact is a larger way of helping and supporting. And a person that you're working with really can see that as a value to them when they see you publicly also creating social and community impact as well. If you are a friend, if you are a family member, It's important to remind a person going through transition that they are still loved, seen, valued, and known. And also you are open to the evolution of what that might look like in the future. The love doesn't wane, it doesn't change, but your willingness to learn anew as they are is open and available to them. Yeah, that's beautifully said. Thank you for that, Dr. Borton. I loved having you as the expert this season, and I wish you all the luck in the future. Thank you, Camille. Thank you for your persistence and your heart, which is really at the center of this entire podcast and this movement. Your empathy and compassion is felt through every episode and everything that we've done. And so we thank you. Well, thank you. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of Let's Not Talk About It, a podcast dedicated to normalizing discussions of trauma. Tell us what you'd like us to not talk about next. Email us at hello, let's not talk about it.com and duh, we'll keep your name and email confidential. Want to help us break the silence and normalize talking about trauma? You can. Here's how. Like, share, and follow us on social. Share your feedback using the hashtag unshush. Subscribe, rate, and review our podcast so others can discover it too. That's all from us. Here's something a lot of people don't talk about. You've got what it takes to survive and thrive. Keep up the good work. We believe in you and let's talk about it.